0: Uh, About five years ago, uh, a miracle happened in my home. I became a selfless person. It was, we had had a child, and then when we had a child, I was like, okay, all my selfishness that showed up when I got married, we've already dealt with that. Now we've had a child, and all my selfishness that was still there, left over from being married to Kelsey, now my daughter Annie has taken care of. You know, it's like, I had to sacri- like I think we got rid of an Xbox in my home. And you're like, that didn't sound like much. Speak for yourself. <laughs> it's like I've got to do dishes, I've got to change diapers, I've got to take out the trash. I've got to do extra more than I was doing last year, which was more than I was doing the year before, and now I'm no longer selfish. It was awesome. It was so good to just be so holy. And then <laughs> and then we had our second kid. And seriously, my expectations were like, ah, you know, I've dealt with that stuff. But then I had this very much, a, like a come to Jesus like, oh no. <laughs> I'm way worse than I ever imagined. Uh, and so for me, people sometimes ask, which one's hardest? The first, the second, and the third. For me, it was my second. Not because of him, but because of me and what it exposed in me. And I realized that deep transformation is a really difficult thing to do. At the same time, I was also working with a church. And I could see that this wasn't just a me problem. That I could look at leaders in the church and how they treated people kind of behind the scenes. And I could realize that transformation isn't just a me problem. They have been here all their lives, and they're still treating people like that. You ever had that experience where your heart is exposed or someone else's heart is exposed and it's like it shouldn't be like this where's this coming from today we're going to explore transforming grace but I want to kind of set the stage with just two myths of grace two myths of grace one of them is one that I tend to believe and it's rooted in this idea it's rooted in this idea that um, transformation is really just like skin deep we settle for seeming rather than actually changing we settle for seeming it's it's pseudo-transformation. But it's rooted in this idea that grace isn't free, at least not for me. Grace isn't free, at least not for me. And so some of us are are worried about what we have done or if we have done enough. Because I've got to tell you, I've sat with a lot of people in their final days and their final weeks, and nearly every one of them asked this question. Have I done enough? You see, it's this embedded myth that grace is something that you have to do in order to get it you have to do enough in order to get this this free free gift grace isn't free that's that's the myth and so it plays out in a a couple of ways one is the pseudo transformation where we settle for seeming and so we end up settling for a change on the surface rather than underneath the surface uh john ortberg he's a pastor out in california he wrote a lot of books one of them is called the life you've always wanted and he calls these boundary markers he says they're highly visible, relatively superficial principles and practices. And so it's like your vocabulary, like what you call your preacher. It's, it's your dress code. It's it's The whole purpose is to distinguish between those inside and those outside. Because if, if we can't actually be changed, you just settle for this kind of cheap knockoff of transformation. This is what the Hebrew prophets were constantly writing about in the Old Testament. It's like, how do you know if someone is a follower of God? How do you know if someone's a, a child of Israel? And the answer should be, well, by their holiness. Do they love God? Do they love people? But that's not anybody's answer in the first century. Everybody's answer is, well, are they circumcised? The prophets are meanwhile saying, it's not about the circumcision of the flesh. It's about circumcision of the heart. And they're they're like, well, do you worship and offer sacrifices at the temple? And the you know, highly visible, superficial. And the prophets are saying, it's not about sacrifice, it's about mercy. It's not a, it's not about your temple worship, it's about obedience. But they settle for seeming. Grace isn't free. Some of us believe what we have done or what we haven't done, but the, the second myth is that grace isn't costly. Um, have you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He's a German who is actually executed by the Nazis. In the last year of the war, because of his involvement in a plot to kill Hitler. Um, he has this underground church in a seminary that starts meeting in a community. And one of his most famous books is called The Cost of Discipleship. And he coined this phrase, cheap grace. You see, on, on half of us are thinking we have to earn it. And the other half are just like, give me more, give me more, I'll take it. He says that's cheap grace. It's grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Another author, his name is Dallas Willard. If I drop too many authors, just you, I'm not asking you to go read all these people. Um, some of this is like, this isn't just me. I'm, I'm trying to show that there's this broad body of diverse scholarly minds and pastoral hearts who are echoing the same diagnosis for the church. This isn't just a me thing and you just walk into a random strip mall in Memphis Um, (laughs) dallas willard he, he calls it gospels of sin management he says we really are just concerned about just getting our sin taken care of and then going to heaven one day and he says the christian faith actually doesn't touch people's real lives it leaves them unchanged he says you can it's statistical verifiable fact that's his words that churches do not change people people can go for decades and never be transformed why is that it's cheap grace It's superficial. It's surface level. Meanwhile, the heart is untouched. But what would it look like for church culture to really dive in to a deep transformation? At Oikos Church, you may not know this. Our mission, it's on the bulletin, is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace through the gospel of King Jesus in Memphis to the ends of the earth. Deeply transformed? If we're going to be deeply transformed. It's going to have to be unlike the methods of many churches, and it's going to have to be unlike um, our past experiences where we settle for seeming. It's going to have to actually embrace the depth of God's grace, and the depth of God's grace, the biblical picture of grace is both costly and free, and the biblical vision of grace is that it is transforming grace. Um, In other words, grace fuels our discipleship. So, um, let's, let's dive into our text. I'm going to spend a lot of time in verses 1 and 2 today, um, so I hope you'll, you'll follow along. Let's read these words. Uh, I'll read them to you. Just read along with me. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. The first thing I want to point out is this phrase here in verse 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. It's it's a different word than this one at the end of verse 2, which is about being transformed. Transformed. You see, a conform word has a mold, a pattern that it fits in. Does that make sense? It's being pressed in and shaped from the outside, and the other one is going from the inside out. These are two different types of transformation. And here he says, don't be conformed to the world or to the pattern in this world. And so um, th- a couple of ways this happens. I want to walk through how I think this is an inevitable thing. You may be thinking, well, deep transformation, that sounds really hard. But actually, there is a sense in which it is difficult, but it's also a sense in which it's inevitable. We are being changed. There's a guy named John Mark Comer, he's a pastor in Portland. He says it like this Spiritual formation isn't a Christian thing. It's a human thing. Let me let me show you what I mean. How are we formed? Now on on your bulletin, if you are taking notes, on the back side, we're gonna be asking the question, how are we transformed? save that the the blanks on the back of the bulletin for just a minute we're going to answer that question as well but let's first just look at how are people formed how do we become who we become when you look back on your life let's say you live to 85 years old and you look back and you say how did i become this let me let me show us the the centering kind of mechanism that forms people are the stories that we believe the stories that we believe about ourselves or about where we come from the, the national stories that we believe some of you are kind of testing out Oikos to figure out kind of what are some of the stories I believe. And you may be thinking, does he believe that, have you ever heard of like the progressives? Or have you ever heard of the conservatives? Both of those are stories. The progressives is a story of evolution, that things are getting better and they're progressing. And we just have to continue on this arc of progress. The conservatives is almost flipped, right? Where there's this time in the past that has to be conserved. Guys, I'm just... Spoiler alert, I'm neither a a progressive nor conservative in that sense. I have a different centering story. Um, I'll tell you about it in just a minute. But the stories that we believe make us who we are. They form us into who we're gonna become. And one of those ways is that our stories end up, the stories we believe about ourselves. I'm calling that identity. Identity is, it's something, it's a pattern of this age that's different from culture to culture. And actually that word in verse two, he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of, does your translation have this world? It's actually the word for age. It's a a time specific historical mark. The first century has a different kind of pattern and mold than we have. The 10th century has a different one than we have. Let me just illustrate with identity, identity. Let's say you're in the 10th century. I, I heard, I think it was Tim Keller at a conference. He gave this illustration. He says, 10th century guy living in what is now called London. He says, he looks inside himself, and he sees two urges. One is an urge to be violent, to kill. And the other is a sexual urge that doesn't actually look like what is kind of kosher, for lack of a better word, in his tribe. What is his culture? What is the pattern that it gives? him? Well, it says, oh, good, you're a warrior, but you have to resist that sexual desire, right? 10th century London? Now flip it, 21st century London. What happens to the same guy who has two urges inside him? I have this desire for violence and to be a warrior, and I have this sexual desire. They say, well, you have to resist that desire to be violent, and you have to embrace that sexual desire. The point isn't so much to comment on either one of those tracks, but to illustrate that every culture has a, has a pattern, a mold, that it's asking us to be shaped by. We are formed by how we see ourselves. And our culture is forming the pattern, the grid. He says, don't, don't be conformed to the pattern in this world. The, the third way that we are formed, are stories, yes, and the stories we believe about ourselves, but then also our people. The people we're with, obviously, form us. The, the people we're with, the people we were raised with, your family system has a lot to say about who you're going to become but so do your friends. And in your 20s, there's this kind of decision that starts happening. It's like, am I going to be like my parents and I'm going to live in my parents' hometown or am I going to go find my own people and become someone different? A lot of times, those go hand in hand because we become like the people around us. The The fourth piece is habit. We become what we do. Um, and, and if you don't know this, knowing is... Uh, all ever am I too old? Murray knows, Captain Planet? Captain Planet, Anybody? Doesn't it th- Okay, more than I thought knew it, although half of you are like, "Who? <laughs> no, uh, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Um, false. <laughs> How many of you know that sodas are bad for you, and you still drink them? Is that just me? It's not just me. There's a couple of people here. How many of you know that physical exercise is really good for you and you should be doing it? How many of you know a hundred things and you're like, I want to do that, I know I should be doing that, and you still don't do it? It's because we're formed by our habits, not just our knowledge. The stories are only part of it. We're also shaped by what we do. Neurologically, this is true, that when we participate in activities, it creates new neural pathways in our brains. Our brains and our bodies are formed by what we do or don't do. That's how we become who we are. Our, our habits, our activities. And then, do you all understand what I'm trying to capture here? That all of this is happening in an environment. Where our, our country, our city, our current culture. This is the pattern of this world, this historical age that we're living in it all is happening in a context does that make sense let me let me illustrate um years ago when i was a young man this is pre-iphone i was um studying abroad in europe um you know it was the first time i saw a smart car it was like these tiny little like go-karts that's what we called them in texas go-karts they called them cars i saw one like full size big dodge dually And it was driving through this narrow alley, what, I mean, what they call streets in Europe. And uh, it drove past me, you know, just rumbling around. I was like, that's, I like that one. And then it drove by and I looked at the plates. Can you guess where they were from? Texas. (laughs) Texas. Nobody in Europe, you know, the environment of Europe isn't conducive to big Dodge Doolies, but the environment in Texas is. It says you kind of can predict what someone's going to be like, but that's actually changing. And this is that the other half, our, our cities, our countries, our cultures, all of that shapes us, but more and more and more, as somebody's recording devices right here, more and more and more, uh, we live in a digital world, not just a physical world. We don't just live in our bodies and live in the world. We actually live in a digital space where we are interconnected, and so more and more, the person growing up in Austin is a lot like that person growing up in Portland who's a lot like that person growing up in Sydney. And it becomes, as the world gets, it's more technologically advanced, it shrinks in a lot of ways. And we end up actually spending perhaps more waking hours in the digital world than we do in the physical world. Both of those are a pattern that is shaping who we become. Does that make sense? All right, so how do we become who we become? How are we transformed one way or another? This isn't just Christian spiritual formation. This is how all of us change. We're changed by the stories that we believe, by who we see ourselves as, and who our people are, and what we repeatedly do. All of it is molded. But Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. He says, you've been rescued from that. There's a better way. So, what does he say instead? He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word transform is the word for metamorphosis. Think, um, butterfly. Have you have you seen the new movie Encanto, the Disney movie? Uh, the, the chrysalis, the caterpillar, and then through pressure and heat and time, it, it comes out into a butterfly. That's, that's this word, metamorphosis. Transformation. It's from the inside out, and it resists the pattern. So what would it look like? Instead of just looking at how are we formed, how are we transformed? This is where your notes um, might become helpful. So I think Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives us All of those same lenses, but with now biblical categories instead of cultural ones. Biblical categories for answering how are we transformed. Here's here's the first biblical category. Do you see that first word, therefore? There's a a commentator, his name is Leon Morris. He says, therefore is an important word. He says, because you have to take it as referring to the whole massive argument that has preceded it. We just picked up in Romans 12... Romans 1 through 11, he says, is actually in view in this one word, therefore. But then he has this other phrase. He says, in view of God's mercy. So what's he talking about? Well, if you don't know, right before this, he's been talking about God's mercy. He says, God is going to have mercy on everyone. And it's this culminating praise of what most people think is... (laughs) Just about the most profound explanation of sin, and grace, and gospel, and faith, and surrender, and Holy Spirit. And now he's saying, in light of all of that, that big story of God, therefore, in view of God's mercy, you see, it's sin, grace, gospel, faith, freedom, it's the spirit, it's everything that was preceding it. And so, what he's saying is that there's a big story that you have to center your lives on. And so how are we transformed? In the place of story, the stories that we believe, Paul is centering the gospel story of how Jesus of Nazareth became king of heaven and earth. That's, that's the therefore. That we were sinners, but we've been saved by this king. That we were dead, but he medicine death and he brought hope. That in our hearts, he's pouring his love into us Romans 1 through 11. I just can't even summarize it. But that's the centering story for this, this vision of transformation. He says, I want you to be transformed. How, Paul? You have to center your life on the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is what we're trying to do at Oikos Church. To, to center our lives, and yes, our worship and our liturgy, but also our, our personal discipleship on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he pre-existed in the form of God, and then he humbled himself and was sent by the Father to become to become like us and human. And he brought in the kingdom through his work, and he went to the cross for our sin, and then he was buried, and then he was raised, and then he ascended to heaven, and he poured out his spirit, and and he's coming back. That is the centering story that changes all of our lives. What would it look like for a church to be centered on that story? I, I hope to find out. There's another phrase that he uses here he says therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy offer your bodies as a living sacrifice this is this is identity language so in in our grid he's actually still tracking but what I'm going to do with the next couple is I'm going to show you in verses one and two and then I'm going to jump over to the next verse you see verse three in your text He says, for by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each other. Do you see? What he's saying has a lot to do with yourself. Your, who you think you are. He says offer your body, some translations will say offer your self, your yourselves to him. So in our grid the story of the gospel then changes our identity your your bodies morris again the commentator he says grace affects the whole of life it's not some ethereal remote affair it's everything living sacrifice now i've never seen anyone perform an animal sacrifice But Paul is writing in a day when that's just normal. Like every day of the week, you can go down and see somebody slaughtering an animal and kind of putting their hand on it so that you know that this is your animal that you bought and paid for, that you raised, and now this animal died because of you. This is just a normal thing that everybody does. And Paul uses that language, but changes it dramatically. And so instead of saying, offer your dead sacrifice, he's actually saying, you are the living sacrifice. You see how it still requires a death, though. The Christianity and the way of transformation is a death to self. This is his language in Romans 6. He says, if we die with him, we will be raised with him. If we die, share in his death, how much more so will we share in the newness of life? There was a preacher in New York. He was trying to capture this for his culture. He says, see, the, the old sacrifices were no problem. You killed it, and then that was it. They burned it, and it was over. But a living sacrifice means every day, every hour, every moment, right now, you have to deliberately, consciously, continually, and perpetually offer yourself to them. It's constant. It's never over. It's intense. You're not living the Christian life unless you put to death the idea that you have a right to live as you choose. He says, I can't believe I'm saying this in the middle of America. I can't believe I'm actually pointing to you. Pointing out to you that there probably has never been a culture in the history of the world more averse to the very essence of what it means to live like a Christian life. Do you hear that? What it means to live a Christian life is that you have to put to death the right to live as you choose. To put to death the idea that you don't belong to yourself. To put to death the idea that you know best what should happen in your life. You should put that to death and give it to God. And it feels like a death to say, you know best, I trust you. Do you see how the identity is totally different than the modern pattern? Modern pattern of identity says find yourself, express yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then he says, you become a holy and pleasing to God. This living sacrifice. We are not our own. We belong to him. The whole self is radically transformed. So in this story, the, the gospel story, we see that grace is free. But if grace is going to impact our identity, we see that grace is costly. This is, trans- this is transforming grace. All right, last uh, next piece, rather. You wish it was last? Um, <laughs> look at this phrase, brothers and sisters. Um, This is one of those phrases you just kind of pass over, right? Uh, He's just dropping some family. It's like a greeting, right? Some commentators will even talk about it like that. But there's a guy named Joseph Hellerman, and he wrote a book about the first century kind of view of family, and it's called "When the Church Was a Family." He says, unlike the modern world where your spouse is kind of the highest priority in your life, in in the Mediterranean world of this time, the highest loyalty wasn't to your spouse; it was to your your brothers and sisters and so when we see this word we actually should load in heavy loyalty because that's how they would have heard it and he's saying to people who as we'll see later in romans not in the sermon but in another day he's writing to people who are ethnically different from one another they're divided in this church these jews and these gentiles are now reintroduced to one another and trying to figure out how to get along how do you get along paul he says, you are family. You are brothers and sisters. Whether you like them or not, you are now family, and your loyalty and your love has to go up to the top. So brothers and sisters, but then look at verse 4 and 5. He says, just as each one of us has one body with many members, these members do not have all the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. You see, how are we formed, Paul? He says, you have to remember that you belong to God, not yourself. And then he says, the other part is you have to remember that you belong to one another, not just yourself. The the story of individualism that is underneath everything in our culture, from our government to our media to the, the consumerism, even of Amazon Prime, like everything is individualized. But this is not this story. This is not the gospel story. The gospel story says that we belong to one another. And so our identity moves us into a a new people, a a beloved family. And these relationships begin taking on a priority. If you were to just kind of scan the rest of chapter 12, you'll see this. He says it's this multifaceted family where we have different kinds of gifts. It's a multi-ethnic family where we come from different places. And so he says you have to love one another with genuine love. You have to practice hospitality he says, you have to outdo one another in showing honor. He says, you, you should be joyful and hopeful, taking care of each other, showing patience. All of these are relational commands that fill the rest of this chapter. Because this, this is how we're formed. This is our people. All right, I'll 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 keep going. Uh, next phrase. He says, this is your true and proper worship. And if you're tracking, we're now onto the habit portion. But he uses this word for worship to describe what Sometimes in modern language we call habits. This is a word that means service. It's like temple work. It's, it's ritual. It's the thing you do over and over and over and over. And he says, let me tell you what your true version of that is. It's not taking an animal and going to the, the temple and giving it to the priest and then killing it and burning it. Your true worship is this daily ritual of counterformation. I'm gonna stop naming authors, but here's another one. He says, Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in, cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, and it miscalibrates them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. This is why worship is the heart of discipleship. Worship changes us it changes our hearts it changes our loves it changes who we become our rituals our rhythms our, our liturgies they f- they have an impact on us they make us into people he says this has to in some sense be countercultural. Um, it's instead of just trying it's training uh, we'll t- we'll talk more about that later i'll i'll move on for now verse six he says We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And then he lays out what these gifts look like. He says, you want to look what your true worship is? It's your place in the family where you enjoy the grace of God lived out in your life. Do you see how that that shapes the value of Oikos church of holistic ministry? Holistic ministry, what we mean by that is both personal discipleship, rhythms, rituals, liturgies, habits whatever word you want to use whatever tradition you're coming from the thing you do on repeat that is your true and proper service to god it changes us but he says you not only have a personal side of that there's also a community side of that everybody has grace for each other and then there's even there's even a ministry to the world and he starts dropping clues at the end of this chapter he says, you have to live at peace with all men, not just these believers, not just the people in the family. You have to live at peace with all men so much as it depends on you. He says, what do we do about our enemies when they mistreat us? He says, you should bless your enemies. He he has a category for up, in, and out. And all of that is this life of discipleship. Um, all right, last one. How are we transformed? Uh, Paul wraps out verse two by saying, then we will be able to, I I love this phrase, because I I talk to a lot of people who want to be different. They want to be changed. And Paul says, here's how. You want to be able? You want to be able to know God's will for your life. You want to be able to live God's will for your life. His, His good and pleasing and perfect will, he says, this path of transformation is what equips us to actually be able to step into that life. And all of this is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't use the word spirit until later on in this chapter. But up to this point, the spirit has empowered every part of what he's saying. The spirit is what empowered the gospel. How did Jesus Christ become king of heaven and earth? When well, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says the spirit of holiness made Jesus king. Jesus Christ, our Lord, when he raised him from the dead. How, do, how does he change our identity? Hunter did a a great job at the table reminding us of who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. But in in the language of Romans, it says that the Holy Spirit has poured his love into our hearts. In Romans chapter 8, it says that the Holy Spirit testifies within us that we are God's children. And just as we reflected on at the table, if we are God's children, then we are part of the family. Do you see that the Spirit is empowering the gospel? The Spirit is empowering the renewed identity. The Spirit is empowering the beloved family, and the Spirit is empowering the holistic ministry. The grace of the Spirit is at work. And so he says, the Spirit has appointed me to do this, the Spirit has appointed you to do that. The Holy Spirit is actually the environment where all of this is happening. There's, n- there's nothing that we can do for the glory of God that isn't involved, that the Spirit isn't involved in moving us along the way towards Him. There, there's nothing that we can look up and say, Oh, I did that. I get to take credit. Th- that is a myth of grace. And the truth of grace is that all is grace. It's a transforming grace that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, that's probably enough, right? How are we formed? How are we transformed? There, there's a pattern that shapes us. But then there's this inner transformation empowered by the Spirit that, that changes us. And then we can see that over time, with with the Kind of right mechanisms in place, these liturgies, these um, litreia, um worship, the, all of that in place, we end up being changed. Okay, what would that look like in a person? What would it look? What are we actually aiming at? And we'll talk more about this next week. It would look like Jesus. It would look like not just saying, "What would Jesus do?" Uh, Let me illustrate. Um, There's three seconds left in a tie game. Your team has the ball. You're like sports metaphor. Some of you are rolling your eyes. Cole's in, though. Three seconds left. your team has the ball. And if you're in your timeout thinking, what would a great player do? You know what the great player would not do? He would not be asking, what would a great player do? (laughs) Because he's already practiced it a thousand times he already has trained and practiced and he knows what he's going to do. And so it's not just what would Jesus do, it's what did he do to be equipped to do what he did. It's what did he do in the whole of his life so then in the moment of testing that he could actually be found faithful. And what Jesus did was he practiced exactly what we're, we're trying to pursue. He practiced these rhythms, its disciplines plus relationships that make discipleship. Disciplines plus relationships equals discipleship. So today I want to introduce, I guess for the first time to this group, the Transforming Graces. Uh, These are disciplines taken from the life of Jesus that are broad enough that basically encompass all of the things that prepared and formed Jesus throughout his life. They're Give thanks, reflect on the word, ask deeper questions, commune with God, eat together, and serve your neighbor. And if you're in Welcome Home, launch team, as our groups are starting, we're going to add one of these into a rhythm of life each week. This is a big part of what we're going to do together in those groups. If we're going to follow Jesus together, we have to follow Jesus, not just believe in Jesus. We have to follow, apprentice after, go in the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. So in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll introduce these in those group environments. And if, if you're not in one of those group environments yet, we're going to create groups for you to join into later. But you can go ahead and start practicing some of these. This is the way of Jesus. It's disciplines plus relationships. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus, it says he spent all night in prayer. He's he's connecting with God in a relationship with God. And then it says he goes and he calls his disciples and he connects in like a like an in environment of people walking together in discipleship to jesus and then it says equipped by prayer with his disciples he goes out into the crowds, up in and out so those are the relational spheres of jesus's life that's what we're going to try to do here up in and out how can we live out these rhythms of grace um i'm so excited um, it's not because like this is exciting stuff you're like this is a lecture but it's because this is life-changing stuff this is where we center our lives on the gospel in such a way that the spirit is working in us to change us to form us and so if you're if you're worried about wh- like what's going to happen to me during this difficult season God, in this view it's it's not threatening when the when the pressure is on when the heat is on it's actually God's good work to transform us all of life can become an experience of joy in community as we live out our, our faith in God let me let me just close with one final kind of reflection um, and I hope you catch on this is something I try to do every week um, I know it can sound like well disciplines habits you know you got to do this you got to do this it all depends on how much we do, we do. But remember, that is not this story. That is not the gospel story. In Romans chapter 12, he talks about offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. But there's one really big exception to what he's talking about with a living sacrifice. You don't have to die. Yes, you have to die to yourself in, in one way. But the only way that we can actually become a living sacrifice is because someone who is the living one was willing to die for us. This true living sacrifice, he didn't just die to himself, although he did that. He, he became human, and he became in the form of a slave, and then he went to the cross, and he had real nails driven through his body. Offer your body, the, the living one, the creator of, of all, who breathed life into everything that exists. He was on the cross, and he breathed his last The, the living one was then taken by his friends in a corpse and put in a grave. And then the third day, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, made him Jesus Christ our Lord. And he raised him from the dead. And he defeated death so that we could become living sacrifices. This is the story. This is this is it. So that Athanasius, he said it like this. He became what we are that we might become what he is. He became like us. He died for us. He died for our sin. And so our death to self, we can find life only because of him. He went to the cross and this is the gift of grace. It is free. It is costly. And it is transforming. Let me... Let me end with this benediction from Romans 11, and then you can go pick up your kids. He has mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things To him be glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed.